Section 10 of Beacon Lights of History, Volume 13, Great Writers, by John Lord. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by K. Hand. Thomas Carlyle, Part 1. 1785 to 1881. Criticism and Biography. The now famous biography of Thomas Carlyle by Mr. Froude shed a new light on the eccentric Scotch essayist, and in some respects changed the impressions produced by his own reminiscences and the letters of his wife. It is with the aid of those two brilliant and interesting volumes on Carlyle's earlier life and Life in London, issued about two years after the death of their distinguished subject, that I have rewritten my own view of one of the most remarkable men of the nineteenth century. Of the men of genius who have produced a great effect on their own time, there is no one concerning whom such fluctuating opinions have prevailed within forty years as in regard to Carlyle. His old admirers became his detractors, and those who first disliked him became his friends. When his earlier works appeared, they attracted but little general notice, though there were many who saw in him a new light, or a new power to brush away cobwebs and shams, and to exalt the spiritual and eternal in man over all materialistic theories and worldly conventionalities. Carlyle's Miscellanies, essays published first in the leading reviews when he lived in his moorland retreat, created enthusiasm among young students and genuine thinkers of every creed. Lord Jeffrey detected the new genius and gave him a lift. Carlyle's French Revolution took the world by surprise and established his fame. His Oliver Cromwell modified and perhaps changed the opinions of English and American people respecting the great protector. It was then that his popularity was greatest and that the eccentric genius of Chain Row, so long struggling with poverty, was assured of a competence and was received in some of the proudest families of the kingdom as a teacher and a sage. Thus far he was an optimist, taking cheerful views of human life and encouraging those who had noble aspirations. But for some unaccountable reason, whether from discontent or dyspepsia or disappointment or disgust with this world, Carlyle gradually became a pessimist and attacked all forms of philanthropy, thus alienating those who had been his warmest supporters. He grew more bitter and morose, until at last he howled almost like a madman, and was steeped in cynicism and gloom. He put forth the doctrine that might was right, and that thrones belonged to the strongest. He saw no reliance in governments save upon physical force, and expressed the most boundless contempt for all institutions established by the people. Then he wrote his Frederick the Great, his most ambitious and elaborate production, received as an authority from its marvelous historical accuracy, but not so generally read as his French Revolution, and not, like his Cromwell, changing the opinions of mankind. Soon after this, the death of his wife plunged him into renewed gloom from which he never emerged, and he virtually retired from the world and was lost sight of by the younger generation, until his reminiscences appeared, injudiciously published at his request by his friend and pupil Froude, in which his scorn and contempt for everybody and everything turned the current of public opinion strongly against him. This was still further increased when the letters of his wife appeared. Carlyle's bitterest assailants were now agnostics of every shade and degree, especially of the humanitarian school, that to which Mill and George Eliot belonged. It was seen that this reviler of hypocrisy and shams, this disbeliever in miracles and in mechanisms to save society, 
was after all a believer in God Almighty and in immortality, a stern advocate of justice and duty, appealing to the conscience of mankind, a man who detested Comte the positivist as much as he despised Mill the agnostic, and who exalted the old religion of his fathers, stripped of supernaturalism, as the only hope of the world. The biography by Fraude, while it does not conceal the atrabilious temperament of Carlyle, his bad temper, his intense egotism, his irritability, his overweening pride, his scorn, his profound loneliness and sorrow, and the deep gloom into which he finally settled, made clear at the same time his honest and tender nature, his noble independence, his heroic struggles with poverty of which he never complained, his generous charities, his conscientiousness and allegiance to duty, his constant labors amid disease and excessive nervousness, and his profound and unvarying love for his wife, although he was deficient in those small attentions and demonstrations of affection which are so much prized by women. If it be asked whether he was happy in his domestic relations, I would say that he was as much so as a man could be. But it was a physical and moral impossibility that, with his ailment and temper, he could be happy. He was not sent into this world to be happy, but to do a work which only such a man as he could do. So displeasing, however, were the personal peculiarities of Carlyle that the man can never be popular. This Hyperborean literary giant, speaking a Babylonian dialect, smiting remorselessly all pretenders and quacks, and even honest fools, was himself personally a bundle of contradictions, fierce and sad by turns. He was a compound of Diogenes, Jeremiah, and Dr. Johnson, like the Grecian cynic in his contempt and scorn, like the Jewish prophet in his melancholy lamentations, like the English moralist in his grim humor and overbearing dogmatism. It is unfortunate that we know so much of the man. Better would it be for his fame if we knew nothing at all of his habits and peculiarities. In our blended admiration and contempt, our minds are diverted from the lasting literary legacy he has left, which, after all, is the chief thing that concerns us. The mortal man is dead, but his works live. The biography of a great man is interesting, but his thoughts go coursing round the world, penetrating even the distant ages, modifying systems and institutions. What a mighty power is law! Yet how little do we know or care comparatively for lawgivers? Thomas Carlyle was born in the year 1795 of humble parentage in an obscure Scotch village. His father was a stonemason much respected for doing good work and for his virtue and intelligence a rough, rugged man who appreciated the value of education. Although kind-hearted and religious, it would seem that he was as hard and undemonstrative as an old-fashioned Puritan farmer, one of those men who never kissed their children or even their wives before people. His mother also was sagacious and religious and marked by great individuality of character. For these stern parents, Carlyle ever cherished the profoundest respect and affection regularly visiting them once a year wherever he might be, writing to them frequently, and yielding as much to their influence as to that of anybody. At the age of 14, the boy was sent to the University of Edinburgh with but little money in his pocket and forced to practice the most rigid economy. He did not make a distinguished mark at college, nor did he cultivate many friendships. He was reserved, shy, awkward, and proud. After leaving college, he became a schoolteacher with no aptness and much disdain for his calling. It was then that he formed the acquaintance of Edward Irving, which ripened into the warmest friendship of his life. 
he was much indebted to this celebrated preacher for the intellectual impulse received from him. Irving was at the head of a school at Kirkcaldy, and Carlyle became his assistant. Both these young men were ambitious and aspired to preeminence. Like Napoleon at the military school of Brienne, they would not have been contented with anything less, because they were conscious of their gifts, and both attained their end. Irving became the greatest preacher of his day, and Carlyle the greatest writer, but Carlyle had the most self-sustained greatness. Irving was led by the demon of popularity into extravagances of utterance which destroyed his influence. Carlyle, on the other hand, never courted popularity, but becoming bitter and cynical in the rugged road he climbed to fame, he too lost many of his admirers. In ceasing to be a country schoolmaster, Carlyle did not abandon teaching. He removed to Edinburgh for the study of divinity and supported himself by giving lessons. He had been destined by his parents to be a minister of the Kirk of Scotland, but at the age of 23 he entered upon a severe self-examination to decide whether he honestly believed and could preach its doctrines. Weeks of intense struggle freed him from the intellectual bonds of the Kirk, but fastened upon him the chronic disorder of his stomach which embittered his life and in later years distorted his vision of the world about him. At the recommendation of his friend Irving, then a preacher at Hatton Gardens, Carlyle now became private tutor to the son of Mr. Charles Buller, an Anglo-Indian merchant, on a salary of £200. And the tutor had the satisfaction of seeing his pupil's political advancement as a member of the House of Commons and one of the most promising men in England. About this time, Carlyle, who had been industriously studying German and French, published a translation of Legendre's Elements of Geometry, and in 1824 brought out a Life of Schiller, a work that he never thought much of, but which was a very respectable performance. In fact, he never thought much of any of his works. They were always behind his ideal. He wrote slowly and took great pains to be accurate, and in this respect he reminds us of George Eliot. Carlyle had no faith in rapid writing of any sort, any more than Daniel Webster had in extempore speaking. After he had become a master of composition, it took him thirteen years of steady work to write Frederick the Great. About the same length of time it took Macaulay to write the history of fifteen years of England's life, whereas Gibbon wrote the whole of his voluminous and exhaustive History of the Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire in twenty years. Schiller being finished, Carlyle was now launched upon his life work as a writer of books. He translated Goethe's Wilhelm Meister, for which he received £180. I do not see the transcendent excellence of this novel except in its original and forcible criticism and its undercurrent of philosophy, but it is nevertheless famous. These two works gave Carlyle some literary reputation among scholars, but not much fame. Although Carlyle was thus fairly embarked on a literary career, the trade of literature he always regarded as a poor one, and never encouraged a young man to pursue it as a profession unless forced into it by his own irresistible impulses. Its nobility he ranked very high, but not its remunerativeness. He regarded it as a luxury for the rich and leisurely, but a very thorny and discouraging path for a poor man. How few have ever got a living by it, unless allied with other callings, as a managing clerk or professor or lecturer or editor. The finest productions of Emerson were originally delivered as lectures. Novelists and dramatists, I think, are the only class who, without doing anything else, have earned a comfortable support by their writings. 
historians have, with very few exceptions, been independent in their circumstances. In the year 1826, at the age of 31, Carlyle married Jane Welsh, the only child of a deceased physician of Haddington, who had some little property in expectancy from the profits of a farm in the moorlands of Scotland. She was beautiful, intellectual, and nervously intense. She had been a pupil of Edward Irving, who had introduced his friend Carlyle to her. On the whole, it was a fortunate marriage for Carlyle, although it would have been impossible for him to have or to give happiness in constant and intimate companionship with any woman. He was very fond of his wife, but in an undemonstrative sort of way, except in his letters to her, which are genuine love letters, tender and considerate. As in the case of most superior women, clouds at times gathered over her, which her husband did not or could not dissipate. But she was very proud of him and faithful to him, and careful of his interest and fame. Nor is there evidence from her letters, or from the late biography which Frauda has written, that she was, on the whole, unhappy. She was very frank, very sharp with her tongue, and sometimes did not spare her husband. She had a good deal to put up with from his irritable temper, but she also was irritable, nervous, and sickly, although in her loyalty she rarely complained, while she had many privations to endure. For Carlyle, until he was nearly fifty, was a poor man. During the first two years of their residence in London, they were obliged to live on one hundred pounds a year. He was never in even moderately easy circumstances until after his Oliver Cromwell was published. After his marriage, Carlyle lived eighteen months near Edinburgh, but there was no opening for him in the exclusive society there. His merits were not then recognized as a man of genius in that cultivated capital, as it preeminently was at that time, but he made the acquaintance of Geoffrey, who acknowledged his merit admired his wife, and continued to be as good a friend as that worldly but accomplished man could be to one so far beneath him in social rank. The next seven years of Carlyle's life were spent at the Scotch moorland farm of Craigenputtock, belonging to his wife's mother, which must have contributed to his support. How any brilliant woman, fond of society as Mrs. Carlyle was, could have lived contentedly in that dreary solitude, fifteen miles from any visiting neighbor or town, is a mystery. She had been delicately reared, and the hard life wore upon her health. Yet it was here that the young couple established themselves, and here that some of the young author's best works were written, as the Miscellanies and Sartor Resartus. From here it was that he sent forth those magnificent articles on Hein, Goethe, Novalis, Voltaire, Burns, and Johnson, which, published in the Edinburgh and other reviews, attracted the attention of the reading world and excited boundless admiration among students. The earlier of these remarkable productions, like those on Burns and Jean-Paul Richter, were free from those eccentricities of style which Carlyle persisted in retaining with amazing pertinacity as he advanced in life, except again in his letters to his wife, which are models of clear writing. The essay on German literature appeared in the same year, 1827, a longer and more valuable article, a blended defense and eulogium of a terra incognita, somewhat similar in spirit to that of Madame de Stahl's revelations twenty years before, and in which the writer shows great admiration of German poetry and criticism. Perhaps no Englishman, with the possible exceptions of Julius Hare and Coleridge, the latter then a broken-down old man, had at that time so profound an acquaintance as Carlyle with German literature, which was his food and life during the seven years' retirement on his moorland farm. This essay also was comparatively free from the involved, grotesque, but vivid style of his later works, and it was religious in its tone. It is mournful, writes he, 
to see so many noble, tender, and aspiring minds deserted of that light which once guided all such, mourning in the darkness because there is no home for the soul, or, what is worse, pitching tents among the ashes and kindling weak earthly lamps which we are to take for stars. But this darkness is very transitory. These ashes are the soil of future herbage and richer harvests. Religion dwells in the soul of man, and is as eternal as the being of man. In this extract, we see the optimism which runs through Carlyle's earlier writings. The faith in creation, which is to succeed destruction, the immortal hopes which sustain the soul. He believed in the God of Abraham, and was as far from being a scoffer as the heavens are higher than the earth. He had renounced historical Christianity, but he adhered to its essential spirit. The next article which Carlyle published seems to have been on Werner, followed the same year, 1828, by one on Goethe's Helena, a continuation of his Faust. This transcendent work of German art, which should be studied rather than read, is commented on by the reviewer with boundless admiration. If there was one human being whom Carlyle worshipped, it was the dictator of German literature, who reigned at Weimar as Voltaire had reigned at Ferney. If he was not the first to introduce the writings of Goethe into England, he was the great German's warmest admirer. If Goethe had faults, they were to Carlyle the faults of a god, and he exalted him as the greatest light of modern times, a new force in the world, a new fire in the soul, who inaugurated a new era in literature which went to the heart of cultivated Europe, weary of the doubts and denials that Voltaire had made fashionable. It seemed to Carlyle that Goethe entered into the sorrows, the solemn questionings and affirmations of the soul, seeking emancipation from dogmas and denials alike, and in the spirit of Plato, resting on the certitudes of a higher life, calm, self-poised, many-sided, having subdued passion as he had outgrown Kant, full of benignity, free from sarcasm, a man of mighty and deep experiences with knowledge of himself, of the world, and the whole realm of literature a great artist as well as a great genius, seated on the throne of letters, not to scatter thunderbolts, but to instruct the present and future generations. The next great essay which Carlyle published, this time in the Edinburgh Review, was on Burns, a hackneyed subject, yet treated with masterly ability. This article, in some respects his best, entirely free from mannerisms and affectation of style, is just in its criticism, glowing with eloquence, and full of sympathy with the infirmities of a great poet, showing a remarkable insight into what is noblest and truest. This essay is likely to live for style alone, aside from its various other merits. It is complete, exhaustive, brilliant, such as only a Scotchman could have written who was familiar with the laborious lives of the peasantry, living in the realm of art and truth, careless of outward circumstances and trappings, and exalting only what is immortal and lofty. While Carlyle sees in Goethe the impersonation of human wisdom, in every aspect a success, outwardly and inwardly, serene and potent as an Olympian deity, he sees in Burns a highly gifted genius also, but yet a wreck and a failure, a man broken down by the force of that degrading habit which unfortunately and peculiarly, and even mysteriously, robs a man of all dignity, all honor, and all sense of shame. Amid the misfortunes, the mistakes, and the degradations of the born poet, whom he alike admires and pities and mildly blames, he sees also the noble elements of the poet's gifted soul and loves him, especially for his sincerity, which next to labor he uniformly praises. It was the truthfulness he saw in Burns which constrained Carlyle's affection, 
the poet's sympathy and humanity speaking out of his heart in unconscious earnestness and plaintive melody sad and sorrowful of course since his life was an unsuccessful battle with himself but free of egotism and full of a love which no misery could crush so unlike that other greatest poet of our century whose exemplar was satan the hero of his poetry and the model of his life in this most beautiful and finished essay carlyle paints the man in his true colors sinning and sinned against courageous while yielding poor but proud scornful yet affectionate singing in matchless lyrics the sentiments of the people from whom he sprung and among whom he died which lyrics though but fragments indeed are precious and imperishable in the same year appeared the life of hayne the great german scholar pushing his way from the depths of poverty and obscurity by force of patient industry and genius to a proud position and a national fame let no unfriended son of genius despair exclaims carlyle if he have the will the power will not be denied him like the acorn carelessly cast abroad in the wilderness yet it rises to be an oak on the wild soil it nourishes itself it defies the tempest and lives for a thousand years the whole outward life of carlyle himself like that of hayne was an example of heroism among difficulties and hope amid the storms the next noticeable article which carlyle published was on voltaire and appeared in the quarterly review in eighteen twenty nine it would appear that he hoped to find in this great oracle and guide of the eighteenth century something to admire and praise commensurate with his great fame but vainly voltaire though fortunate beyond example in literary history versatile laborious brilliant in style poet satirist historian and essayist seemed to carlyle to be superficial irreligious and egotistical the critic ascribes his power to ridicule a lucian who destroyed but did not reconstruct worldly material skeptical defiant utterly lacking that earnestness without which nothing permanently great can be effected carlyle says voltaire read history not with the eye of a devout seer or even critic but through a pair of mere anti-catholic spectacles it is not a mighty drama enacted on the theatre of infinitude with suns for lamps and eternity as a background whose author is god and whose purport leads to the throne of god but a poor wearisome debating club dispute spun through ten centuries between the encyclopedia and the sarbon carlyle's essays for the next two years chiefly on german literature which he admired and sought to introduce to his countrymen were published in various reviews i could only allude to one on richter whose whimsicality of style he unconsciously copied and whose original ideas he made his own in this essay carlyle introduced to the english people a great german but a grotesque whose writings will probably never be read much out of germany excellent as they are on account of the jarring combination of parentheses dashes hyphens figures without limit one tissue of metaphors and similes interlaced with epigrammatic bursts and sardonic turns a heterogeneous unparalleled imbroglio of perplexity and extravagance there was another on schiller not an idol to carlyle as goethe was yet a great poet and a true man with deep insight and intense earnestness his works said carlyle in the memory of what he was will arise afar off like a towering landmark in the solitude of the past when distance shall have dwarfed into invisibility many lesser people that once encompassed him and hid them forever from the near beholder 
Thus far, Carlyle had confined himself to biography and essays on German literature, in which his extraordinary insight is seen. But now he enters another field and writes a strictly original essay called Characteristics, published in the Edinburgh Review in the prolific year of 1831, in which essay we see the germs of his philosophy. The article is hard to read and is disfigured by obscurities which leave a doubt on the mind of the reader as to whether the author understood the subject about which he was writing. For Carlyle was not a philosopher, but a painter and prose poet. There is no stream of logic running consistently through his writings. In characteristics, he seems to have had merely glimpses of great truths which he could not clearly express, and which won him the reputation of being a German transcendentalist. Its leading idea is the commonplace one of the progress of society, which no sane and Christian man has ever seriously questioned. Not an uninterrupted progress, but a general advance brought about by Christian ideas. Any other view of progress is dreary and discouraging, nor is this inconsistent with great catastrophes and national backslidings, with the fall of empires and French revolutions. End of section 10.